you in under the wheels. How pathetic. Welcome to Under the Wheels. I'm Matthew. And I'm Gabe. And in today's episode, we're reviewing some twofers, some old 2021 movies. One's up for awards, the other 2022. one... 2022. 2022. Oh my god. This is where I'd be like, I need a mulligan, but nah. We, we push <laughs> forward. Like the uh, front line of the Western Front. Uh, no, we're not getting into bad metaphors. So, um, yeah, I think both of these movies came out hoping for awards, and only one of them is really going to get anything, I think. Uh, we're going to look at the menu and All Quiet on the Western Front. It's funny when you say only one of them is maybe up for any awards. I actually don't know which one you're referring to. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which one? So, which one do you think should be up for awards? Neither. <laughs> Let's get into this now. What do you give? We'll start well, by. We'll start with oh, one, then the other. Yeah, we'll start. We'll start with one, and then the other. Um, I let's talk about the menu first. Okay, the menu. The menu. So, um, Gabe, tell us a little bit about the menu. So the oh, wait, menu- that's right. You don't remember the. I can I can kind of I'll I'll give my best and you fill in the gaps. Sounds good. Because I saw I did see this in November. Um, all right, the menu is a satire um, about a chef named Ray Fines who <laughs> runs some fancy pants like frou frou restaurant on an island where they do uh, like really bizarre tasting menus basically a parody of a tasting menu Mm -hmm. and um there's you know a group of people who go to the island for this fancy dinner and they get a tour of the island and then things get weird um where ray finds is like i basically brought them all there to kill them and torture them and also do a weird performance art thing um, where he like bitches about his life for however long the movie is about a hundred minutes. But then Anya Taylor joys there and she's not supposed to be, she wasn't on the original guest list. So he's like, what are you doing here? Are you part of the game or not? And she's like, what's the game? And uh, yeah. And so there's that going on off to the side. And that's kind of all I remember. The only thing I really <laughs> remember about that movie is um, Ray Fiennes trying really hard to say cheeseburger with an American accent and not succeeding. Cheeseburger. 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 Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hello. My name is Ray Fiennes and I come from Iowa. Yeah, Ray Fiennes plays an Iowan person in this. He plays a man from Iowa who says cheeseburger. 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 So Ray Fiennes will be, because Ray Fiennes plays an American version of himself, we will call him Ralph Finney's today. His Um, name is Ralph Fiennes. Ralph Fiennes. And uh, his American accent is horrible. But um, so, yeah, it's... Yeah, basically, it's supposed to be sort of like this very blunt commentary on like the haves and the have-nots. Like, 
as a person who has worked in customer service in the service industry for a long time, there were a lot of things in the movie that I was like, I identified with, which I'm sure many people did uh, who watched the movie. You know, all of the, actually, I think it did actually pretty well for its budget. Yeah, it like caught on weirdly. Yeah. Like no one watched it at first and then it had some pickup and people were like, oh, the, the menu. Oh, didn't you see the menu? So what I was, a clever satire about uh, things in it's very the, the economy. All right, so I do. There's a couple of things I wanna I wanna point out to you, but based off of your general disposition, I think I can. I want to guess. I kind of want to guess that you're. It's either fine or mediocre. It's fine. It's fine. All right. I I actually gave it a. I felt like it was a solid witness until the end. I think they. Uh, I think <clears throat> the end is the only logical way they could end it but it doesn't mean I have to like it. So I think it's a solid witness. <laughs> I'm like reviewing old notes I wrote right after I saw the movie. <laughs> uh, it's muddled. Final act is weird. Monologues feel off. Some neat ideas slash humor. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the one thing is like, okay, so we'll talk about humor for like the tone of it. I actually thought it was like really funny. There were a lot of little moments that happened that I was like, Oh my god, this is really funny. This is just a, like a really black comedy. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. It was like a lot of stuff wasn't like ha ha funny. It was like ah, oh, that's funny. Um, I, like, yeah. Go ahead. Let's just launch into spoilers with this because let's let's do it. If you if you uh, it's a food movie. It's a little creepy. It's not particularly gross, but I think that the performances are worth watching. So that also if you like, if you if you're like in line Chef's with my table. Kind of Yes, like chef's yeah. table. It's got the chef's table guy uh, doing like photographing all the food, and it looks really cool. Yeah, he was the um, second unit director. Yeah, he's the second unit, the food photography. It was unit. Aw- like out of all like normally you have to do like stunts and stuff. This guy's just like, oh yeah, I do stunt work for food. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, cool. So yeah, if you're into food and stuff, I think it's worth watching. So yeah, so like the people at the dinner, it's. Uh, it's two. It's a really rich husband and wife who go to the restaurant a lot, but like, kind of just go there to eat. They like don't know what the food is at all. Mm-hmm. They have no appreciation for it. There's a food critic and her like pretentious husband. Um, I think it was her publisher of, like, too. It was her oh, husband and publisher, and they. I want to talk about them, but okay. we'll get we'll we'll go back to them. There's a set of like finance bros. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an actor and his assistant. And then there's Nicholas Holt and Anya Taylor-Joy, who are kind of the two that don't really fit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas Holt is just like a food nerd, and then Anya Taylor-Joy is, is there because he asked her to be. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> She's just there. Yeah, well, she is. She is. Uh, she is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's some, like, so one thing that I thought was like, oh, that's funny, but not like ha-ha funny, was, um, so... The restaurant struggled during COVID, so this guy came in as an angel investor to keep it afloat. Um, and because Ray Fines feels like sort of imprisoned by this guy's partial ownership of the restaurant, he kills him in front of everybody by drowning him. But as he does, he dresses him up as an angel and like has him descend from the sky into the lake mm-hmm. that the island is on. And drowns him. I was like, oh, that's funny. He's an angel investor. So you get it? You put wings on. <laughs> okay, so so let me let me point out uh, two two moments that that made me laugh. Um, 
one of them was the mess, right? Like there's this huge <laughs> buildup and it's very traumatic. Oh yeah, so, I thought the mess was fun. I thought it was funny because of because of this. So uh, just to kind of ex- explain it quickly, the sous chef comes out <laughs> and he always wanted to work for Ralph Feeney, Feeney's. And um, so he's like, oh yes, now do you, not my career or my life or my job, but would, do you like my life? And the sous chef's like crying. He's like, no, I worked so hard. I came from Sparks, Nevada. Shout out Sparks, Nevada. I came from Shor- Sparks, Nevada. It was like they were trying to go for like, oh, what are Heartland cities that no one knows about? Anyway. So he's like, he wanted, he always wanted to be like this amazing chef and he's pretty good. And so the sous chef came up with this idea for the mess. And uh, Ray Fiennes is like, you know, do you want to, um, do you want my life? He's like, no. It's like, do you like your life? No. He's like, okay. And they brought out this like white tarp and they decorated it with, uh, with like little, um, uh, like, oh my God, what are they called? Well, it's like little plants and stuff like that. So he pulls out a gun and shoots himself. And like, you know, his, his gut, his brain splatters everywhere. And then they're like, okay. And the servers bring out the dish. And if you pause the dish, it looks like (laughs) it's, it's, it's a mess, but it's like, oh yes, we have beef here. We've got, um, shit. What was it? There was, um, yeah, there was like some, I forgot what the sauce was. And then they had like bone marrow. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's like, it's like what happens when you blow your head off. It's just all the remains of the chunks. That's funny. <laughs> and uh, I like, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. There's one other one I want to point out, but you go, go ahead. You next. One other bit that made me laugh is when, you know, Ray finds fully reveals his hand and he's like, I'm here to, you, you are all going to die tonight. I'm going to kill every single one of you. Um, the actor guy played by John Leguizamo, his assistant <laughs> is like, I'm not one of these rich people. Like, can you let me go? And he's like, where'd you go to school? She said Brown. And he's like, did you have financial aid? She's like, no. You're going to die. Do you have any student loans? Do you have any student loans? She says, no. No. You're dying. You're dying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other one. So Nicholas Holt, who I think is like, I feel like Nicholas Holt is underrated. I always really like him. And the more of like, sort of like this like lovable asshole the better he is. Cause like in this, he's clearly like kind of like, Oh, you kind of like him, but also he's such a dick, but he's Nicholas Holt. So, you know, he's, he's, he's like kind of friendly and oh, yeah. he's, it's his character is so bizarre. Oh, I loved his character. I thought it was so fun. I know. Like, <clears throat> I think we both, we, I don't know if you do. I know someone or I know and have been around people who are a little bit like that. Actually. No, I don't. I've only seen them on TV, but like, <laughs> But like we're familiar with people who are like, ah, oh, yes, you know the 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 taste of it is good, and like, ah, oh, yes, they're using this type of finish. Like it's more like um, Top Chef, right? Where they're well, like, I it, yeah, that is fine. Like that was all very funny. What was weird is that so he is the he was not invited there like everyone else was, right? Um, because the chef has no personal animus against him; he's against mm-hmm. everybody else. Um, the, Nicholas Holt's character just has always wanted to eat at this restaurant and yeah. is like a huge food nerd and is a huge fan of Ray Fiennes. So Ray, he has this correspondence with Ray Fiennes and Ray Fiennes is like, okay, you can come, but like, just so you know, I'll, I will kill you at the end of the dinner. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. He's, he's actually happy about it because it's a great honor for him. Ooh, yeah. I would love to die. Like, my hero gets to kill me after having the best meal ever. What would be better than that? Exactly. So he's like, oh, cool. 
But then he's taking pictures of the food, and it's like, for who? There's no fucking internet, so you can't post this. You're not going to look at them later, because you know you're going to die. So why are you taking pictures and pissing everybody off? Like, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, oh, is the chef going to be mad at me because I'm taking pictures? It's like, why are you taking pictures? You, you should know for another hour. Maybe he's hoping beyond hope, like, the chef will let him go free or something. Or, like, maybe someone will come to the island, find his phone, and, like, they'll know. Or maybe That's a he cinema ding. I'm cinema dinging this movie. That's because fine. Because he's taking photos of the food. And it makes no fucking sense why. That's when he why knows I, he's going to be dead. The other, I think the other thing that kind of threw me off that I wasn't too sure of, which is the other part that I wanted to talk about humor-wise that I thought was really funny, you know, aside from Ray Fine's accent, was... um. Uh, so Nicholas Holt, like, they, like Ray Fiennes finally reveals, like, oh, yes, I've had, you know, um, correspondence with this gentleman, and uh, he's very excited to come. You like food, don't you? He's like, yes. He's like, your palate is more sophisticated than everyone else. Well, like, well let me yeah. preface this. I think he only does this after putting it together that Anya Taylor-Joy doesn't know what's going on, mm-hmm. and that he brought her there to die. So he gets pissed about that. I don't mm. think he would have done that otherwise. Okay, fair enough. My that that part didn't confuse. Like I actually enjoyed all of that that happened there. But then he says something like, "You're a bit of a chef yourself, aren't you? You work in food." And I think did he lie and say yes, or was it was it a fact? Because when he actually gets the chance to prepare something, he doesn't know how to cook, which I thought was was a very fun and funny scene. Where he's like, you know, he's, you know, they get the, the, the shallots and everything like that to like, you know, give me some, you know, and he's like, oh, that's an, you know, he's, uh, Nicholas Holtz is cutting the shallots and Ray Fiennes is like, oh yes, that's a very interesting way to cut shallots. We've never seen that before. Maybe we'll have to take your technique. He's like, oh, let me get some lamb. And he, he's trying to cook the lamb and Ray Fiennes is like, do you think that lamb is done? And he's like, um, uh, yeah, it's done. You know, and he's like sweating bullets and everything. And, uh. <laughs> Like, we all know what's coming with the joke. Like, they, it's all prepped for us in advance. Mm-hmm. You know, he tries it, and he's like, oh, this lamb is terrible. It's undercooked, blah, 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 blah. The vegetables are, you know, you know, you can't digest them. And he leans over to Nicholas Holt, and he says something, and Nicholas Holt takes off the coat, walks away, and you find out later he's he's killed himself. But when they show the actual plated dish, like, mm-hmm. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. It says, Tyler's bullshit. And it has a list of all of the things that Tyler himself would have complained about <laughs> if he had reviewed the food. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. The funniest moment in the movie. It just, like, I cracked up. I had to pause it. I had to go back. I had to look at what they actually said about it. It was like, you know, undercooked lamb, inedible, um, inedible sauces, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that, that, that got me. That got me good. So yeah, I I thought the movie was funny, but also in trying to describe the movie, I can see how most people would not find it funny. (laughs) Well, yeah. Because like the idea of like John Leguizamo's character is going to die. Why is he going to die? Because he's a complete asshole who like wrote a bad review for his assistant and is cheating on his wife and name drops for no reason no he's he's dying because ray fines had one day off in like two weeks he went to see his movie and it was a waste of an hour and 45 minutes he's like you're fucking dead like okay i think that's funny but i can see how most people wouldn't (laughs) so um but um yeah with that said um what did you think about the performances in the movie (laughs) 
thought they were fine. Um, like Ray Fiennes is always good. Anya Taylor Joy is always good. Nicholas Holt is always good. Ray mm-hmm. Fiennes' American accent, as we've said many times, is tremendously bad. But yeah, performance-wise, I thought everyone did good. Uh, I know Hong Chow's been getting a lot of praise for her really weird character, mm-hmm. um, which is like I sure I guess her character is just weird though. Like <laughs> <laughs> her whole thing is just standing around being weird um, and yeah, off-putting to everybody. Yeah. So it's like I don't, I don't know. Like I don't know how much uh, how much plaudits you could give that. It's more like um, um, the movie failed her, not her dedication to the role of being weird. I would say. Yeah. I mean, as far as Tyler, Nicholas Holt's character, like he's kind of, you know, pretentious and annoying. But like, you know, you're thinking like everyone's going to get killed. Why? Like, but why this guy? Um, so it feels like, I don't know, it feels like some of the stuff with him later on, it, it came off a little contrived because it was like, you know, we have to make him this irredeemable asshole so that we can kill him off. I mean, um, it's pretty easy to make him an irredeemable asshole when it's like, you knew you were going to die here. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, no, exactly. So, so that's oh, how they do it. Oh, you're about that part there, yeah. Like, yeah, that's the part where they're like, oh, you're basically murdering this woman by bringing mm-hmm. her here. And yeah. it's like, oh, okay, now he's going to die because he's an irredeemable asshole. So, yeah, it, it's just, I don't know. It felt like there's a lot of contrivances in the movie or things that feel like contrivances. That when you watch it, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you, ha- you felt like you had to do this so that we would feel this way when you do this next thing. Yeah. Do you um, have a, I, I, I mean, I can probably present some scenes for you, but do you have, a, do you have another example? Which is, do you, I want to know if you have another example, because that's probably why I felt the ending just was okay in the movie. Like, I didn't love the ending. I think the ending, yeah. but I don't know where I would have, what I would have done Well, I mean, the biggest fucking contrivance of all is the cheeseburger scene. Where, uh, so Anya Taylor-Joy does some snooping around the island after mm-hmm. sort of pretending to side with Ray Fiennes. And um, she finds a picture of him happy uh, grilling cheeseburgers at like a burger stand in Iowa where Ray Fiennes is from. Yeah. Um, and uh, so she, as, as Ray finds is about to kill everybody, she delivers this monologue. And the monologue is the most fake sounding monologue I have ever heard in my entire life. Where everything she's saying, it's like, okay, a character says something <laughs> to manipulate another character into doing what they want. Okay, you've seen that in a movie many, many times. Like she's egging him on. Right? No. She so she's saying something to manipulate Ray Fiennes into doing something she wants. But mm-hmm. the way she talks, the manipulation is on the surface. She's basically saying, I am manipulating you right now, and Ray Fiennes is like, Okay. Yeah. Sure. You can do that. And it's just, it, it rings so fake. Um, that whole so, ending scene. So what she does is yeah. uh, she hasn't, the whole, so one of the running things throughout the movie, she hasn't eaten anything. She has not touched any of the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Ray Fiennes keeps taking this as an insult. He's like, eat your food. Like, I prepared this very specifically. This is the best food in the world. Like, I'd be incredibly insulted if you didn't eat it. She never eats it. 
Right. So as he's about to kill everyone, she's like, hey, I'm still hungry. And he's like, what? And then she goes on this monologue about how the food he serves is like cold and passionless and uh, cringe and, you know, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other slurs. And uh, he's like, I don't know, the way she says it, 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 it just sounds false. Like, I don't believe it, you know? It sounds like a manipulation, like she's trying to goad him into doing something. And it's like, mm-hmm. if anyone has ears or a brain, they can hear that, too, in the intonation of how she talks. But for some reason, for movie, for plot reasons, uh, Ray Fiennes is like, oh, what? And she's like, yeah, I dare you to make me a cheeseburger. I bet you can't do it, you big, you know, fruity pussy. And uh, <laughs> he's like, oh, I'll make you a cheeseburger. It'll be the best cheeseburger, cheeseburger you've ever had. <laughs> so then he makes her a cheeseburger with fries. And uh, she takes one bite of it and then says, in the most fake sounding way imaginable, <laughs> um, uh, he's like, she says, can I get this to go? And he's like, sure. <laughs> and he gives her a to-go box and she leaves. <laughs> and that's how she gets out of the situation. I'm like, what the fuck was that? Like, did, did are we supposed to believe that Ray Fiennes genuinely fell for this? Or were they both play-acting something? And if they were both play-acting something, why play-act at all? <laughs> they were doing a really bad improv scene. Like, if they're both in on the joke, just, then it. why have the joke? Just let her go. And if they're, not, if they're not both in on the joke, if Ray Fiennes was really taken in by the worst series of monologues ever, then, Jesus Christ, that guy, I mean, he must be lobotomized or something. <laughs> All right, so here's here's what here's what I'll say. I need to I need to I need to like kind of go through this point so that any of my friends who listen to this who want to know my point of view on this scene um, can hear it. So I don't have a problem with that scene. So early on, they talk about how um, you know Anya Taylor Joy is revealed to be a, an escort, and Ray Fine is like, "Do you do you still enjoy doing your job? And she's like, I used to, but I don't anymore. And so you get this feeling like Ray Fiennes has not enjoyed being a chef in a long time. So then she goes into the house and she sees like in a really weird photoshopped image, him like cooking a burger. And um, I'll be honest at that time, I was thinking what was going to happen was like, he was going to be revealed to be a fake. Like he doesn't really touch any of the cooking and it's all the other chefs who are doing the cooking. And like, she was going to reveal him to be just like this, this complete fraud and then it yeah. would have derailed the whole thing and then some other ending would have occurred but that's not the case so she realizes the only time he was ever happy was when he was working at it, it was like american beauty and he's kevin spacey oh so the only god time I was ever happy. no yeah that's what <laughs> you made this movie even worse for me <laughs> I, you didn't oh oh yeah he's kevin spacey from american beauty the only time he was ever happy was when he was making cheeseburgers for people who <laughs> like to enjoy cheeseburgers and um, they do get one one joke in there that I thought was funny. So, um, like, I agree with you. Like, her whole, like, hey, I wasn't satisfied. I'm still hungry. And I think he's using this as, like, he's he was thrown off. He's like, well, can I get you anything? And she's like, I want an American cheeseburger. And he's like, okay, I will get you an American cheeseburger. Would you like fries with that? Yes. Crinkle cut or... Julienne. I thought that was funny. I was like, what? 
Um, but he goes about making it with American cheese because it, uh, like it's the only type of cheese, I guess, that melts properly. And they show the food porny scene that we all love where he's like making this amazing burger. Um, and so I, I thought it was one of those things where it was like she's given him one last moment of happiness. And because she gave him that one moment of happiness, she can go free. That's how I read the scene. Hmm. So and again, I'm not trying to discredit your frustration with it. I just want to make sure that is uh, that is put on the record for under the wheels because like, yeah. again, I, I I actually like that scene. My ending, the problem I have with the ending has nothing to do with that. Oh, everything! <laughs> all my entire problem with the ending has to do with that. Oh, I just uh, yeah. So I will say this though, like Anya Taylor Joy, great. I have a feeling she's. Pro- I could be wrong on this, but I have like on the back of my mind, I'm like, isn't she a vegetarian? Wouldn't she never eat this burger in a million years? Is this like one of those acting things? She like nibbles at the bread and she's like, that sure is a tasty cheeseburger. And I was like, oh my God. So I will admit Anya Taylor-Joy's acting in that. It could have just been a piece of plastic. (laughs) (laughs) He actually makes the impossible burger. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I I, I, like, it's just like, I will agree. It's all very well it it is it is very set up yeah but yeah. um but i agree with you it's it is just a, like it is a very strong contrivance every um, yeah the whole yeah. way that it's executed feels very contrived yeah yeah i mean it's one of those contrivances that i was i was okay with and again i think ray finds acting in that minus his line delivery is really good because like many times it's almost like he's fighting the urge to give a smile and show like how happy like his eyes soften a whole lot in that scene, whereas they're like really cold through the most of it. So like to me, Ray Fiennes is just like, he's putting on a, a masterclass in like how to act and how to do the job well. You know, a real professional who can't fake an Iowan accent or wherever he's supposed to be from. But um, I don't know. I just like um, the ending itself, though, of like them all dying. Like I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny that it was s'mores. Um, I liked that the wife of the asshole um, rich dude like gave Anya Taylor-Joy sort of like the nod like go ahead be free you truly do deserve it because you outsmarted a genius Um, but for some reason it just like by the time the movie ended I was like all right I guess inevitability is certainly something I don't know yeah I don't know that's how I felt about the ending ending of it I mean yeah, the ending ending I didn't have a problem with because it's what it's leading up to the whole time. So right, yeah, might as well just do it. Yeah, um, and that's that's why I say like I don't know how I would how I would do it differently. It just didn't. It just wasn't like it wasn't my cup of tea. You know, that's yeah. Take that why? cup of tea away. Ray why was it not your cup I, of tea? I don't know. I I my best I can say is I just wasn't as satisfied with the the execution of it and i think there had to have been something going on earlier in the movie that would have made me like it i don't know if it's because it's so inevitable that like we all see it coming um or if it's just sort of like the um like maybe i just don't like the way movies like this end because that was my problem with midsummer was i was like the inevitability of it all feels so um so meaningless at well, the end, I was like, oh. I think it it's what you do with the inevitability of it. Like the example I always give of a of a story with zero surprises is Dune, mm-hmm. because the book, at the very least, is all about this slow march towards something you already know is going to happen, right? And how like 
almost like cripplingly painful and anxiety inducing that March is because you know what's at the end. I mean, I guess maybe even knowing it. And again, I, this is why I'm having a hard time with the ending is because like when we talk about individual moments in the execution, like Ray finds dressing everyone up like graham crackers and and then pulling the the hot coals out and lighting everything on fire. Maybe I was hoping for one more like last fun twist. If the ending was really gory, would that have made it better? No. No, cuz I like I like the whole idea of the of the s'mores and when the chocolate uh when the chocolate uh, fez bur- you know melts down and it gives them all like this horrific look. I liked all of that stuff. I liked looking at the marshmallows cook. I the explosion was fine. Um, I think I was just hoping for one last clever twist. I think that's what it is. I was looking for one last very clever thing, and that's and that then that's why it didn't work. Again, it's it's really more fault of me than the movie. I'll admit that readily, because um, I don't think it could end any other way. But and no i don't know what that twist would be maybe something maybe like what i said before about uh like him being a fraud or something and like found out how though how would that even work it wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) it wouldn't i'm just trying i'm just trying desperately to like try and figure it out with you like not just give sort of a half-hearted answer here um but obviously i i can't i can't give any more than just like Howdy, Matthew, not happy with ending. Mm. <laughs> and again, it's the ex, like Mark Mila did a great job, uh, director of many HBO things and kind of took over and I figured was kind of doing it as a uh, kind of like a mercenary director for hire. And he executed it really well. I just, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. Two more things I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. The first one is the critics. And the reason I wanted to mention them, I want to give them a special mention because they reminded me of us. <laughs> but in a good way in a good way like i was i was perfectly happy and enjoying them like i didn't i didn't find it insulting i thought it was funny and here's why okay so um so you're like the the expert who would look at the at at the breadless bread plate and you know you notice the you know i would look at it and be like ah oh, yes this is a beautiful like what a beautiful setup what a clever what a clever joke and then you would be like yeah mm-hmm, yeah except that the emulsion is broken here and and you know they, they the way that they space out everything, it, it could have been better. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's true. My emulsion is terrible and the spacing is awful. You're 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about the breadless bread plate. Oh, yeah. I thought that was funny, too. I laughed at that. Uh, but anyway, the, they reminded me of us a little bit. And I was like, yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> like I understand it's a complete lampoon of like, you know, like the, the, like, um, the disagreeing critics who end up di- agreeing. But like. But it it just reminded me of us, um, and I was and I was okay with it, and I loved it. I was like, yeah, this is this is great. I love this. It's like I kind of want them to survive, and like the pride that the woman took in closing down the really bad restaurants. And I was like, those were people's jobs, and she's like, yeah, but the food wasn't good. You know, it's like okay. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about was I felt like this movie was advertised in a very like a twenty four way. And I felt like this was a yeah. movie where the studios were looking that A24 makes a certain amount of profit, and this was their best attempt at trying to make an A24 movie. <laughs> I could totally see that. They're like, okay, we have this movie. We need to make it look like Midsummer. <laughs> yeah. Or like, uh, yeah. Like, 
that, and it like the advertising campaign felt like that with the with the strings and everything. And uh, as I was watching it, I was like, I can tell, I can kind of see what they're going for a little bit. Um, with like even bringing in the people from like Chef's Dish, but I feel like it completely. It's like one of those, like when Bill Belichick started running the the hurry up offense, like the what are, the Chip Kelly hurry up offense. And it was like, this is just such a poor imitation <laughs> of an A24 movie. Like the best part about it is the fact that it's very conventional. <laughs> and the and like all of the stuff that they do to try and make it like like uh sort of like that offbeat kind of creepy horror movie is the stuff that's like <laughs> not my favorite. Yeah. Um, but I just kinda wanted to bring that up and get your thoughts on what you think about that. You know, it's it's a classic case of deceptive advertising that a24, to be fair, engages in quite a bit. Um, so it looks like they're ripping that playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, what I wanted to ask you, though, yeah. is this movie is full of, quote, social commentary, unquote. <laughs> okay. So what is the menu about, really? Like, what is it trying to say? It's trying to say... That just like in American Beauty, we are at our happiest when we're working the worst jobs ever. Um, I think it's trying to say that uh, the only way that the people who are on the lowest rung can ever get satisfaction against the people on the highest rung is if they sacrifice everything, including themselves. Um, And even then, um, it's, it's a chaos that no one can escape. Hmm. Also, that Ray Fiennes can't do an American accent. Yeah, but God damn it, I hope he keeps trying. <sighs> he he's like a top, he's the top contender, I think, for the 2022 Raleigh Beckett Award. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because Nicholas Holt's American accent's actually really good, and so is Anya oh yeah, Taylor it's very Joy. sharp. Yeah, um, no, I think I think I think that's a fair assessment. What do you think the menu is about, or did I help you to kind of like? parse through some of your complex emotional reactions to this movie. <laughs> I think your uh, your statement is far more coherent than I think the movie is. Um, like, it's, it's weird because it's like, you know, everyone in the room is mostly wealthy and Ray Fiennes talks a lot about, like, us versus them, the working class versus the ruling class. And um, and all that, and like working a blue collar job versus being some, you know, desk jockey. Um, there's he like Ray finds his character makes a lot of overtures to that, in spite of the fact that he is probably quite wealthy at this point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing really materializes from that because a lot of the people in the room aren't punished for being rich and. Some of them may not even be rich, like the food critic woman. Mm-hmm. She may not even be that wealthy. She she just you know is like one of those people with really fancy tastes, and right. is employed. She's employed by a newspaper. Like what newspaper employee is rich? Um, right. I would say so it's, it's like not- I don't know. And it's like the, it, it's like okay, if that's what you're going for, why these people? Because his reasons for killing some of them are very arbitrary. Like he kills the food critic who helped his career because she ruined other people's careers, which seems very virtuous. But then he kills John Leguizamo and John Leguizamo's assistant because John Leguizamo was in a movie one time that he didn't like. 
So and he kills his right. mother, um, <laughs> which well, is also like Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's like, well, okay, I don't know what the fuck this means. And then on top of that, you know, he because what he's doing sometimes seems very arbitrary. He seems less like a you know virtue gone wrong sort of anti-hero and more of just like a a dick mm-hmm. where it's like if you're trying to del- like from an ideological standpoint if you're trying to deliver some sort of ideological message having the person who's saying it like questioning their integrity causes the integrity of the message to become questioned as well which then yeah. creates a really muddy mess right well, I mean, so I guess the first thing I would say is I don't think of it as blue collar versus white collar. I think of it specific. Well, well, it's not. It's not so much blue collar versus white right. collar. It's more rich versus poor. It's rich versus poor, but it's also specifically the people who give versus the people who take. That's that's how I read it because the people who give are the people who are serving. Which again, it gets muddied because it's a giant kitchen. Um, but I also like I can I can point to ideas that don't cohere properly which is probably why like i pointed out mark mylod worked on it he's a tv guy doesn't do a lot of movies he's done a lot of game of thrones a lot of entourage a lot of hbo stuff probably did the pilot episode for a couple and when it when it comes to like a director for hire kind of guy like that messages can become more of like ah, oh, yes this is a this is a brush stroke of something from the script and this is another brush stroke of something from the script um, the reason I bring that up is because the idea of all of these people with like these fake refined palates going into a restaurant and eating the equivalent of art with a bunch of ridiculous things, I find is is like entertaining, and I like that they're they're making fun of that ideal, but it also doesn't necessarily add to it. Like they're so refined and sophisticated that they just can't eat normal people food. I guess is the joke. Um, and, and so, and it kind of lends credence to what you're saying as far as like the message is muddled. If you're supposed to identify with, with Mr. Ralph Fiennes, because he's clearly a psychopath. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he's, he's off his rocker, which I guess is what makes him more intriguing to watch than to actually like analyze. So I, I agree with you there. I mean, Keep in mind, this was produced by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. Adam McKay, who's all about that social commentary now, and Will Ferrell, who probably would have played the role of the chef if given the chance. Oh, man, that would have been Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the menu with Will Ferrell as he's, like, killing everyone? He's like, okay, everybody. I might have liked that more. (laughs) I would love to see a version of this movie directed by Adam McKay and starring Will Ferrell. I would love to see a version of this movie. Like, everything else is the same, you know, But, but you just switch that out. Um, I think that would have been really funny. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to, and I think that's why like the movie to me, I like, I like it, but I don't think it's like a transcendent movie. It's fine. It's whatever. So do you, I'm a fan of movies about food. Are you a fan of movies about food? No. Okay. Well, I mean, they don't like, they, they have no particular sway one way or the other. Gotcha. So like, I like burnt. I like, uh, oh, you chef. like burnt? What the hell, I do. man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my it's one of my guilty pleasures. I love that movie. Uh, I've seen it so many times. That like, is like to- that is like the worst Aaron Sorkin ripoff indulgence <laughs> movie I've ever 
did you actually conceived did you actually watch it i've seen bits of it oh but my it's God, basically like this guy is a giant asshole but it's okay because he's a genius the movie uh it's written by stephen knight so of course i love it um, oh I, man of course <laughs> of course no it it's it's very it's very cliche but the the one thing that i really hate about them like i like the i like the way that they plate all of the food and kind of the way the kitchen is run and sort of this idea of like the asshole genius chef is always right that gets changed at you know they he his big um realization is that throwing a temper tantrum in your kitchen like a little five-year-old is not the best way to go about it so it's very cliche um it's like it's by that sounds rough if i'm being honest but but there's a mention of seven samurai and he's like and so uh bradley also it's one of those movies where it's like it's got all of these stars in it but they're only you can tell that they only brought them in for a day like what's his name john wells like paid a bunch of people like all right you're gonna come in but only for a day uh alicia vikander you're popular right now let me get you for a day lily james you're popular let me get you for a day um anyway so there's this moment where he's talking to Emma Thompson and he's like, Emma Thompson's doing his drug testing and also a therapist. And Bradley Cooper's like, have you ever seen that movie Seven Samurai? That's how I want my chefs to be. Like the Seven Samurai. And I'm like, this motherfucker's never seen the movie Seven Samurai. Half the samurais in Seven Samurai are fucking dog shit. I know. He's like, he's like, I want my chefs to be like the Seven Samurai. Four of them are dead and the other three uh, live but are saddled with crippling depression so so like that always makes me cringe but i'm wondering if stephen knight was playing fourth dimensional chess because the whole point of seven samurai is that by working alone you die and working together you survive which is basically the theme of lost so i'm wondering if he was actually like ah but bradley cooper's character just like everything else in life misinterprets anyway well the other major um, lesson of the seven samurai is uh is uh, the farmers have won, but the samurai have lost. Yep, yep. And that it's better to run from a battle. The only way you... <laughs> the real noble samurais are the ones who run from battle to fight another day. <laughs> we should do seven samurai one day, but I feel like I feel like I'm too. I feel like I'm too. Uh, I'm too close to the material. It's my favorite movie. <laughs> You're too. You say that as if you like made it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Toshiro Mifuni's butt is in my face nightly. <laughs> it's a movie from the 50s. You're you're plenty far from it. I get I mean like emotionally connected to it. I'm too emotionally connected. You're gonna be like, this this scene right here is dog shit, and I'm gonna be like, no, Gabe. Every scene is perfectly conceived in this movie. <laughs> Shut up. You hate the you hate the the intermission. Um, who's the yeah. who's the samurai who's like his whole thing is that he's like the best swordsman in the world um and he's his the, introduction is he is him like carving up that dude in a duel like who is the character yeah as much as i name? love the movie this is oh my god I, i'm gonna have to cut this as much as i love the movie i can never remember any of their names <laughs> oh man that's that's not uh, good here he is kuzo 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 yeah the yeah. Kyuzo's introduction I always thought was so cool. Um I always remember Kikucho's name. Yeah, I remember that's Toshiro Mifune. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always forget uh Samada's name, which is Takeshi Shimura. I just know him as Takeshi Shimura, but I love <laughs> I love his introduction as well. It's just like it's this and and I feel like when I first watched the movie, I struggled getting through the first thirty minutes until Takeshi Shimura shows up. And then all of a sudden the movie's like firing on all cylinders. But every time I've rewatched the movie, 
Um, I'm always like, okay, all of this sort of like the sort of depression that sets in in that first half is or in that first 30 minutes is so important. But anyway, we get we're getting way off track. Um, yeah, I don't know if the menu is going to make my Mount food more of movies. Is burnt on your Mount food more? Oh, yeah, dude. I love oh, burnt. so kick that off and put the menu on. Jesus, no Christ. way, no way. <laughs> burnt and Chef are both on there. Chef isn't actually pretty good movie. Chef Burnt is a, good is movie. a giant steaming pile of shit. I love Burnt. It's so oh, good. God. It's so good. What's his name is in it? Um the the bad guy from John Wick 2. He's great in it. And Daniel Bruhl is in it too. Is which this, I should... is that our segue into <laughs> All's Quiet on the Western Front? It is. All's Quiet on the Western Front. All right. Uh So all do you want to do a brief brief general synopsis of it sure um <laughs> all's quiet on the western front is about a german soldier who goes to war in world war one and does not have a good time <laughs> that's the whole movie and that every iteration of this is that uh, oh my god I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, explain a plot badly. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually did a double take when I first watched it. I was like, is that Daniel Bruhl? Yeah. Did you read the Did you read the book no. in high school? Okay. I had to read the book in high school, but I completely forgot everything except for the ending uh, of the book. So, um, yeah, basically wide eye. It, it's like full metal jacket. <laughs> But of course, the actual book came out, you know, in 1929. Yeah. Um, and specifically, it tells the story of the losing side. It's like the story of World War II from a German perspective during the final days World of War One. World War One. I'm sorry, World War One. Very important. We can't actually have stories about the Germans in World War Two, where it's told from their perspective. That is no bueno. But in World War One, it's okay, which I think is is uh, is good and important to to talk about. So, what did you think of All's Quiet on the Western Front, or All Quiet on the Western Front? I'd give it like a witness. Yeah, I actually really liked it. I'd give it a low shiny. People were super into this movie uh, when it yeah. came out. Like it was, it was all over like the brosphere. It's like. Bro, you gotta see all's quiet on the Western Front. It's amazing. Um, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. I think it has a lot going for it, and I think it has a lot that detracts from the experience. Um, like, so the whole movie is basically it's it's doing its best to be an anti-war movie, like from an ideological perspective trying to portray war as being horrible and purposeless without ever glorifying it. The way that, say, Saving Private Ryan has been accused of glorifying it. Ooh, um, Ooh controversy. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, no, that's like an old, that's an old sentiment. It's like you, portraying war, you, it's hard to portray war without glorifying it because it's inherently exciting. Um, yeah. So it's like... It, as a result, making a truly anti-war movie is impossible, theoretically. Mm-hmm. So I think this this movie's trying to take a stab at, at that. Um, 
like the opening scene where a bunch of soldiers get killed and then their bodies and uniforms are recycled and then handed out to new recruits. Like that's part of it, for example, just showing like their, their sacrifice was meaningless. Everything they did was meaningless. It just gets churned over and handed to the new, new crop of young, young, dumb and full of cum idiots who are going to go die. <laughs> I must um, prove myself to my family. I must bring them honor. Suddenly the Mulan theme plays. I was going to say, are we, are we going to Mulan now? Um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean that I like like that's that's an effective rhetorical device, I would say. Yeah. Um that opening sequence in this movie. I think that you know a lot of the movies where where the movie is most effective is just this as kind of this long miserable slog of brutality and conflict. Um like a lot of the battle sequences are really good. A lot of there's a lot of just really amazing images of just desolation and destruction and death where it feels very apocalyptic. Like it feels almost like a portal has opened into another world that is just hell. Um, and it's it's almost it's kind of surreal in that respect. And I think that is really well done. And I think it's really t- to the movie's benefit. I agree. Um, like I think all the characters are sort of there. Like they don't <laughs> <laughs> like there's 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 different people in the movie who have like names and stuff, but mm-hmm. um none of them stand out especially strong from anybody else. Like as as personalities. They all look different, so you can tell them apart on that basis, but that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's I think like everything having to do with the war itself, being on the front lines, like all that's really good. It's it's it is exciting unfortunately, I guess, if it's trying to be an anti-war movie. But it is exciting, but also like depressing and devastating and and beautiful in its ugliness. Um, I would say the things that like kind of really detract from the movie is the whole Daniel Brühl plot line where, Mm -hmm. so like we, we bounce between the experience of the soldiers on the battlefield to kind of the higher ups who are managing the war. And I think it's meant to show the contrast of like, like soldiers are just pawns for people playing power games and stuff. Um, but it, like on an emotional and visceral level, it completely takes away from the experience of the soldiers having this break because the soldiers don't have that break. Their hell is relentless. Um, so yeah, there's a plot line with Daniel Bruhl where he's negotiating an armistice with France to end the war, which didn't really add anything. And then there's another okay. I actually soldier. like that plot line, but I can, I can, I'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, which, yeah, I felt like it didn't add much, and I felt like it actually took away from the relentlessness of everything else. Mm-hmm. And then there's another kind of subplot of this general who just sits in a castle and bitches. Um, and he's very pro-war. Like, he wants the war to keep going. Um, and there's a very ironic moment where 
he's talking to his like commandant and is like, so do you have a job after the war? And the commandant's <laughs> like, yeah, my dad owns a shoe factory. I'm going to go uh, work in it. And he's like, oh, well, you're lucky. I'm no, a he sol- owns a saddle factory. He owns a Whatever. saddle. It's some, some Stone Age bullshit factory. Right. Um, and <laughs> saddles aren't going anywhere. We're always going to be on horses oh, in God. Germany. I hate that like winking. Cars. <laughs> I hate that like winking at the audience. Shit I, I thought you would. I thought you would do. hate that. Yeah, that was that was annoying as hell. Um, we'll, call it, we'll call it the Downton Abbey effect. But the general says, uh, "Oh well, you're lucky. You know, I was born a soldier." And he like right like uh, you know in the same conversation he said he's never fought in a war before because mm-hmm. there's been no war in Europe for like fifty years. He's like, I was born a soldier. This is all I do. And it's like, bro, you just sit on your ass stuffing your face with roast pork. Like, you're a giant stinking piece of shit. What are you talking about? Um, And so it's like, he's very hateable. And I do like that he's very hateable. But also, he has no real place in the story either. I think, again, if he was excised for more focus on our main character and his pals in the front lines, I think that would be an improvement. Yeah, and our our, our we'll, little solidus snake there, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we can all of this, all of these issues with the extra plot lines not adding anything really come to a head at the end, where I thought the ending sucked. Um, like, but in, I'll in get what, into that, okay. I guess, after you give your thoughts. Yeah. So, um, I want to like just a couple of the points you made. So, I like I like the Daniel Brule section because I like Daniel Brule. No. I'm kidding. That's not why. Um, I so I think I like all of that because we are so acclimated to thinking of World War One as this war that like as World War Two light. Like, oh, Germany is bad. We need to fight Germany. You see it in like the Kingsmen. You see it in 1917. And I like this idea. If being told from the German point of view, it's like, hey, guess what? The actual answer is that, like, who who knows why this was a big issue? All we know is that it's a bunch of us dying. And so to have that sort of over, that, like, negotiation aspect and how the negotiations basically fucked over Germany for, you know, ten, the 10 years it took for the Nazis to rise up, I think is, like, it's a good a good way to make this sort of like an all encompassing world war one movie. Um, so that's why I like that section. The thing about the, the, the general who was in war to me comments on this idea of the nature of war and how it's changed. Like old snake he's like, war has changed to Gutentag. And it's like, you know, like back in the day when his father was waging war, it was like, you know, the last dual war. It wasn't this thing where millions of people are dying. So to kind of have this guy trying to come to terms with that, I thought was kind of an interesting aspect. Um, that that's where I that's where I kind of like I, I I disagree with you. That those are the reasons why I kind of disagree with you on those parts. I like those parts. Now, with that said, those are not in the novel. <laughs> so that's some DB Weiss, David Benioff additional bullshit. <laughs> um, but I was I was okay with that because I thought it gave a more uh, a more holistic look at the war because again like one of the reasons I like War Horse is because of the World War II scene where the horse is trapped in the middle the German soldiers come out the German soldier and the British soldiers come out and they work to free the horse 
and it's kind of just like a like a microcosm of like how all of the all of the soldiers felt about the war. Like we're Wait, all the you, same. World War One or World War Two? You keep saying World War two. One. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. In World War One, in War Horse, it takes place during World War One. Uh, the War Horse gets into the, Joey. The War Horse gets into the middle of the conflict, and then um, Toby Kebbell and a German dude free the horse. And um, it's kind of like all but, of these soldiers are. Go ahead. Wouldn't we get all of that just from focusing on the soldiers? Because they don't know what the fuck's going on. This whole thing yes. seems idiotic and pointless to them. Yeah, but we do. But one thing that one aspect I like that is, I mean, could have been done in less time. Because goddamn, this movie's long. Um, one thing that could have been done in less time, but I like, is the older guy who's reflecting on like, ah, yes, war has changed. You know, this isn't just like a simple conflict of like two people running at each other with does he with blunt weapons. That's the that's kind of what I always, that's that's the impression I got out of that. No, the impression I got was like, boy, I sure love war. War is what gives me purpose. Yeah, we need more some, of it. As someone who doesn't, yeah, yeah, but like as someone who doesn't sit on the lines and thinks that like you know he's he's wanting he wants his time to come. You know, the warmonger types that are always around. Like I didn't have too much of a problem with that, especially opposed to like the the way that the front like okay. It sounds like I'm going to go on a diversion. So I like the aspect of having him observe as an older man looking at war and always wanting to have like his, his glory war. in war. Yeah. yeah. And this sort of old notion of that and how that old notion has never really changed. So I did. That's why I like that aspect of it, even though I kind of agree with yeah, you. Yeah, but if it's they reflected cut it, I'm not in the miss kids it. at the beginning. Like they have that too, except their illusion gets shattered because they actually experience it. Right. The old man's and, illusion is never shattered because he never experiences anything. Which I think is also like I think that's an important side to see, but I also agree with you if they got rid of it, I'm not losing any sleep. Right. So, I can see why they might have wanted to put that in, but I you know, if they don't have it in there, I'm fine. The other thing is I think it's important to see how like we kind of forget how much of a dick the French terms were for when germany surrendered that's something that always sticks out in my mind and i like seeing that as like um as a counterpoint to sort of the normal idea of like germany is bad in world war one it's like well it's a complex thing and let's take a look at this even though it oversimplifies it and it just makes the french look like dicks um i i like that aspect of the negotiation of how it adds like a time bomb to the movie as well of like there's 72 hours you have 72 hours to decide and it's like and guess what we're going back to war and it's like oh my god can't they just end this like isn't it fine if they just you know why can't they just sign it so i, I do like that aspect of it um again if it lowers it but if it makes the movie shorter by a half an hour to 40 minutes you know it's fine if you cut it i, I think it I makes the movie shorter it. more focused more like emotionally visceral and impactful mm -hmm. um it seems like it it feels like a kind of an interjection by a historian or something more so than an essential piece of an artwork yeah which again i think i think opinions vary on that a lot of critics didn't like it either though so you're probably more right than I. You're probably more right on this than I am, but I do like the, I do like the historical act because again, I keep bringing it back to 1917. Like as much as I like 1917, the movie is basically 
it's like it takes place during World War One, but it feels very much like the mentality of World War Two. Like all of the Germans are basically bad guys in a video game. Um, the English are right no matter what they do, and uh, England and the Germans are bad. Like that's not, but that that's such a simplification, you know. Well, that's also how the world is constructed for you when you're a soldier. Yeah, but they don't have that moment like in uh, like in the big parade or in this, um, or even in the original book where it's like all of, or in Warhorse where it's like they all realize like the enemy is us. Mm-hmm. Like we we're all the same. Why are we doing this? Yeah, and and that's it's like in. Um, it's like the mentality that 1917 takes is the mentality that Wonder Woman takes. <laughs> so like if you're going to if you're going to dial it down to be that simplified, I don't know if you know. Well, I, I think it's more that 1917 is about survival. It's about one guy trying to not die. Um yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front I think takes a broader view because it's about right. a group of soldiers who are trying to not die but also wondering why they're in a position to die in the first place right which is why i like all quiet on the western front it actually made me want to reread the book and there was a scene that i i I was waiting for that never happened where uh paul paul braumer goes back to uh his hometown and like realizes that he can't really integrate back into life the way that he knew it yeah which then kind of helps helps at least in the book it helps sell the ending better. Uh, God, the ending into, in this movie sucks. Let, let's get into the ending. So the ending is they signed the armistice, which goes into effect at eleven o'clock on November eleventh, mm-hmm. and at ten fifty a.m. Uh, well, so while this goes on. Uh, so Paul and his buddy go steal a goose from some farmers, and then the farmers shoot his friend. Mm-hmm. So then Paul gets really depressed. And then at 10.50 a.m., 10 minutes before the armistice goes into effect, that douchebag general is like, all right, we're going to attack the French right now, claim as much land as we can in the next 10 minutes. And then they go to this like idiotic battle sequence for no reason. And then uh, there's this battle that gets fought. And then uh, Paul like has this stare down with a soldier and gets stabbed in the back right at 11 o'clock as the <laughs> armistice goes into effect. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. This is the most contrived fucking ending I have ever seen in my entire life. Like this... <laughs> oh god it, it feels like a child came up with this it's like and then right as the armistice goes like comes into effect he gets stabbed in the back isn't you... that like so it's like no this just feels like it the whole movie feels so grounded and then the last the, the entire ending just feels like fantasy it feels like a writerly construct did you uh did you see the fog no the mist with um the, the frank darabont movie the mist no, but I know what happens. Okay, I've to- so I've told you what happens in the ending. Spoilers for The Mist. No, but you didn't tell me. I just know. Okay. So that's... that. I, I find those kinds of endings hilarious. <laughs> like, where it's... Like, I didn't find this one hilarious. I, I wasn't even that upset because I knew that he... 
I knew that Paul dies. Well, in it's it. like it's one thing that he dies. Like that's fine. I don't care that he dies. Mm-hmm. It's that he dies at eleven o'clock on November eleventh, yeah. right after this like weird siege that never actually happened. Right. Um, that's all. Like it just everything about the ending seems so deliberately put in place to make a point. Yeah. That it rings false. It doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel honest. It doesn't feel organic. Yeah, it feel, it, it's like pushed too. It's just like pushed too far. It, yeah, it, I don't, the, the the limits yeah. of credibility are pushed so far in the ending for a movie that is so grounded otherwise um, yeah. that it just it completely falls apart. You know what? I like filmmakers who take a risk. I appreciate that risk that Edward Berger took. So <laughs> I had to bring back Ray Fiennes. I'm sorry. Um, I fair enough. Fair enough. And obviously the book doesn't end that way um, because it, it, you know, that battle didn't happen. I didn't have as much of a problem with it because um, I don't know. I didn't, I, I like, I actually liked it. Uh, <laughs> maybe I just liked the CG effect of the bayonet going right through his chest. I was like, that's pretty good. Um, but like sort of, like you said, at that point, Paul has lost every single one of his friends. He's completely alone. He's become a shell of his former self. He's no longer giving off any emotion. And, um, but it's like if he just threw himself you know, into battle and died you in like an actual better. battle that happened, that mm-hmm. would be better than making up some 10 minute seat. Like it's 10.50 when they go marching out for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, I, yeah. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's like, I think that's a mileage will vary thing because I didn't I don't I didn't have as much of a problem. I feel like if they had it, I feel like they they probably felt as a movie that they needed to have a a punctuation at the end, even though I felt like it could have ended a good 10, 15 minutes earlier. Yeah, I feel like they felt that they I, needed a good punctuation. But moment. it's just like, sure. Yeah. But you can have that without making it feel like the author is reaching in to bend reality towards this like incredibly contrived point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. I understand what you're talking about. I understand what you're saying completely. Like, I, I don't really have anything to refute it. It didn't bother me as much. Um, I can see why they might have thought they needed it, but, um, like again, it's, it's a very, it feels like a very Hollywood thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, which is also a shame because it's a German movie. It's not even yeah. from Hollywood. Yeah, but, you know, they, they watch a lot of Hollywood movies and they're like, oh, this and that. Which is also strange because I feel like they did so many things in this movie that felt very anti-Hollywood movie. Yeah, they do. You know? do a lot of stuff that's anti-Hollywood. Like, the the cut pattern on the edits is very long. The cinematography is great. But also, like, a lot of the way that they portray the violence. I mean, I don't think they glorify it. I think they do a really good job of showing it better than a lot of war movies that I've seen um they do a really good job of just being like war sucks you know with the violence like um they hold on what's his name the guy felix Camerer, felix Camerer. i don't know the guy who plays as paul like i was like why did they choose this guy he looks like a he's 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 not he's not a looker let's just put it that way but my god can that does my god does that guy have an amazing ugly cry like holy (laughs) shit like 15 minutes into the movie and he's like crying over that one that one dude who's dead and i'm like holy shit man i'm ready to start crying 
So I, I, I think he does such a great job of like carrying the movie for mm-hmm. the most part emotionally um, that it makes all of those battle scenes. And like it gets, I forgot that this movie was shot during COVID because they're just like in each other's business, eating each other's shit, super dirty. I was like, fuck, man. This is like. Well, you like, know, there's Germans and eating shit. Like, <laughs> they're eating the shit they're eating the crappy bread and they like pick up sausage one guy eats it the other one passes it to another one i'm like covid guys covid um but like they they the movie does such a good job of putting me in the world that like i can and i had to watch it over multiple smaller segments so maybe that also helped me to just be like okay with the way it ended um, mm. whereas whereas for you you were literally like in the world of the movie for the entire runtime, so yeah, those, like those I watched moments it in one sitting, so lot. it's like when I mm-hmm. felt that reality get broken. Well, did you see end. it in theaters too? No, I, I don't oh, think okay. it was in theaters. I just saw it at home. It's a Netflix okay. movie. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like, yeah, you're in that reality for two and a half hours, and then it gets shattered by this crappy ending. Well, not only like, that, oh, but also the, the also like you were saying, like the Daniel Bruhl stuff that didn't really work for you. Like, you're like yeah, that too. You're, you know, you're expecting to be in this sort of super gritty, super rough and tumble world. And well, it's, it's just like, like all of a sudden this, you're out of it. There's a know? sense of momentum and mood and feeling that the movie builds really, really well that then gets broken every time they cut away from um, mm-hmm. the main plot line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I, I think like for me, I kind of like that breath of fresh air. Um, but I can also it's... see it equally being... You know, I think in like a, a traditional sort of sense, the breath of fresh air is good. Like in a in a generic movie sense, you need to break mm-hmm. things up, change things, give the audience a break. I that make like I agree with that. I think that for this particular movie, which is about not getting a break, specifically, like that's what the movie's about, you shouldn't give the audience a break. Yeah. I get it. I understand that. I'd be interested to see the 1930s version. They say that's a really good one. Yeah, they, I've heard that is uh, a great one. Well, we know that you're not going to like it, though, because, you know, it's old. So. I, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I do have a hard time with old movies. It's like... Uh, it is I, pre-code, though. It is pre-code. Ooh, yeah. that's hot. Um, <laughs> Look, they're showing her ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's straight-up porn in this movie. <laughs> it's but pre-code. it's out of focus. Um, well, I was going to say, uh, there's something about movies from like the 1950s and before where I don't know if it's like our nervous systems in the 21st century are too oversaturated with like dopamine and crap where they just don't like hit the way there's, I think they're supposed to, you know, like if you were alive in 1950 and saw a movie and saw the apartment. Or mm-hmm. if you were alive in 1930 and saw All's Quiet on the Western Front, I imagine you would just be blown away right. by those movies. But then, like, today, we're in a world where, like, you know, we grew up with Vine, how yeah. is any movie gonna, how is any movie from that era gonna, like, hit our brains and nervous systems the same way now? I always think of it as, um, as like reading an old novel, right? I mean, you've read you've read the classics, some of them. And like some of them clearly don't work anymore. Like they're just an academic exercise, but some of them still work. I feel like, I feel like you like some of the older kind of the books and things. 
Well, um, like bits of older books. I mean, like, I have a hard time with stuff from before kind of like the 1900s. Yeah. Um, where like, I don't know. There's a lot of just endless noodling that goes on in like Frankenstein or the Scarlet yeah. Letter or um You're like even even Heart of Darkness is pretty dry. Yeah, it considering is. <laughs> considering like how considering how tightly wound of a book it is, it's mm-hmm. it it really goes out of its way to make what you're to make your reading experience as slow and dull as possible. Yeah, it's like you feel like you're crawling down the Congo. I just remember the paragraphs would go on for pages and pages. I was like, what the f-? Like, I had to read it for an English class that I subsequently dropped after I read Heart of Darkness. <laughs> but as I was reading it, I was like, why are these paragraphs so long? Why are they... It's like, it was so hard for it to retain my attention. But like, you know, and like, I agree, like the way that movies were done back then, some of them, I agree, don't hold up. There are others that I like, but have like you would probably you and I would probably say like pacing issues. Oh, or, you know like, what does hold up issues. from the 1800s though is uh, Chekhov. Chekhov really holds up. Um, yeah. and Shakespeare. Shakespeare really holds up, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> a little bit. B- pieces of Shakespeare hold up, but I will say Chekhov holds up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kafka holds up pretty well. Um, now, but does it hold up because of? the writing itself or because people are able to, when they translate it, they're doing a better job of being more accurate or, or making it more colloquial for the current time. Period. Well, I think it's, it's both. Cause I know Chekhov's writing even like for the time, especially was considered very sort of terse. Um, mm-hmm. Like it wasn't as extravagant as a lot of like Victorian writing typically was. Um, and Kafka's was similar. It was very kind of brief and had a very dry sense of humor. Um, you know, they used to say like, uh, I guess Kafka lived in like a, some apartment in Prague or something like that. Mm. And they said, uh, his neighbors would complain that, uh, he was howling with laughter all through the night as he was writing, because he apparently thought his stories were hilarious. <laughs> I've never read any Kafka, and I, I know I need to, which is bad because I teach English. <laughs> well, <laughs> teach it would be worse if you taught German. Um, that's true. That's true. English, uh, you c- it's forgivable. Yeah. Well, and plus, also with writing and stuff, we can let more of it play with our imagination. Like, I don't know. I guess it's inevitable that some of it is just dated and we get used to it. Like when you read Brave New World and it's like, oh, yeah, the 40 and ideology. And it's like, right, because of because of I always thought it was because of like the Henry Henry Ford. And oh, his, dude, um, reading and his, science fiction yeah. from like the 40s and 50s. It is painful. It's so dated. Like like these are the it's like <laughs> like these were very clearly written by people with no writing ability but had oh, like yeah. cool, they had like cool sci-fi ideas but could not put words together yeah um like that i read a a robert heinlein oh. and that guy cannot write at all like he it's awful and like he, he's one of those people he's just like a, he's like a faucet of cool sci-fi ideas but then cannot put words on the paper in a way that's <laughs> 
that is in any way pleasing or readable. Is he? I remember reading The Rainmaker from John Grisham, and like I tore through that and I loved it. And uh, one of the reasons why it was so successful and such a page turner was because it was written in the simple present tense. And I was like, really? And I looked through it, and it's like every sentence is like five words long. And I was like, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> like reduce. You know, if you can, if you reduce the sophistication, like uh, what's his name, uh, Dan Brown, not the best author, but goddamn, those those books, like they move. They move. Well, I don't like think it no has other. anything to do with sophistication necessarily, and more to do with aesthetics. Mm. Like, I mean, yeah, there are page turner type books where they're not very like aesthetically pleasing, but they're just they move. They move. They're, it's like a big pile of fried potatoes it's just these empty calories you can plow through really quickly and not feel full um i think there is also writing that is not like that that is that you know takes more time to chew through but that it is like enjoyable to you can enjoy the art of putting words together Mm -hmm. as the author practices it if that makes sense no i i agree i Cause like I was, I got into Joe Abercrombie and like, I just read his first novel after reading his young adult novel and like his young adult novel, every single chapter was five pages. And in his regular novels, they're like significantly more. With a I lot like, more I was detail. like, this is how the kids think anything, anything more than five pages. They can't finish it. I'm not going to lie. I tore through that, that young adult novel. I was, I was like, Oh, this is easy. Like, man, this is great. Cause it's still, it's still complicated and it still has some of his like little quirks and nuances. But I was also like, I was also like, this is a, this is a blockbuster movie that I'm watching right now. Yeah. I will you say, know. sci-fi writers from the that era who actually are really good and do know how to write, like Philip K. Dick for sure. Yeah, um, he writes really well. And uh, same thing with like Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. um, and Frank Herbert. Honestly, like I think Dune gets a lot of criticism for how it's written and how kind of alienating the prose is. But I think it actually works to the story's benefit, um, and I think it is it is actually really really well written. Yeah, I will say I it took me a long time to get through Lord of the Rings, the first time, yeah. and then I I picked it up and I started like I I picked it up and I was like let me read the hardest chapter to read let me read the Council of Elrond and I started reading it and I was like this is so good like. How can anyone not like this? This is amazing. So I also think that sometimes, you know, at at least for me, the first approach can be difficult. Like I'm looking forward to rereading Dune because the first time I read it, I kind of struggled through it and I'm excited to read it again and like kind of just enjoy it. I tried reading the Silmarillion once. I got like half a page in and just had a pounding headache. <laughs> I did read the Simmer, uh, the Silmarillion. I did read the whole thing. Oh my god! I don't remember. I remember very little of it, but I did read it. Yep. I remember the Chrysagram Mountains and the Mormagil who like had sex with his mom and then went crazy and was like living out in the forests and eventually died. What the fuck? Because um, you know, I could be completely wrong on that. Like I said, I don't really remember most of it, but I do remember the process of reading it. So. So there you go, rings of power nerds. But going back to All Quiet on the Western Front, this is the movie that is up for a bunch of awards. Mainly, oh, okay. that makes mainly sense. I think, because we didn't really talk about the cinematography, but the cinematography, uh, to me, is fantastic. The, Pretty good, uh, yeah, I liked it. I, 
I think some of the visual effects are kind of goofy. Like at one point he bashed some dude's head in and like, it was like the blood splatter. That's like the, the, the default blood splatter in like every single VFX program or like a, uh, like a GIF you can get or not a GIF, like a JPEG you can get and just throw it on someone. So some of that <laughs> stuff I was kind of like, eh, but the cinematography I thought was great. The editing for the most part was really good. Um, obviously not going to be nominated for any acting awards. Uh, the music was weird. I liked it, but it was weird. I think it was the music itself wasn't bad. I think it was used poorly. It was like because the, yeah, that the like the the farting synthesizer theme that they have. <laughs> welcome to nineteen. Welcome to nineteen eighteen, where we well, have no, no, a farting no. like, electric fine. synthesizer. Like, there's nothing wrong with having contemporary music in a movie set in the past. Like, it, we all love the spaghetti westerns weird. that are full of electric guitar. Right. Okay. Like, there's right. nothing wrong with that. But my yeah. issue is that that your whatever you were just quoting, which anyone who's seen the movie knows what you're quoting, they use it almost at random because it shows up yeah. like when the tanks appear. And it's like this big, intense reveal. Like these people have never seen motorized vehicles before, and now they're going to be killed by a bunch of them. Like, okay, that works. But then why is it also playing during a really quiet scene where nothing's happening? Yeah, like, oh, they're walking it forward. Yeah. That's what I didn't like about the score is that, like, it. You, yeah. Yeah, they, they use the wrong music for the wrong things. Like, that, that is battle music that you're playing. Scary battle music. Why are you playing or, it during a quiet jaunt through the countryside? Like, or if you're going to play it during a quiet jaunt through the countryside to, like, build up this mood of, like, uh, of, like you know, uncomfortableness, like, do it consistently. Don't, yeah, like, don't just do have it once. Different, and then never have, again. <laughs> yeah, like have a different type of song going the rest of the time. Oh, I didn't know Daniel Brühl was a producer on this. That makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it, like have it happening, like be like everything. Be consistent in your in your burring, you know, in your mm-hmm. digital farting, I guess. <laughs> um, but but like because like that one time where they did do it when it was quiet, I was like constantly on the edge of my seat waiting for some bad shit to happen. But no, it was just like, oh, there's nothing, there's no sound in this scene. We should add something. Brap. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's like, Paul, please stop eating so much sausage. It's really, <laughs> it's really bugging the, the rest of us. Um, so I, I want to make a comment on something you said about Saving Private Ryan, how it like glorified war. Um, I'll contrast it with this. So like, I think it's all of the World War I movies that I've watched make it very clear that World War I was not fun to fight in, that there was very little honor to gain from it. You know, kind of like that's the standard That's the standard line. With Saving Private Ryan, as much as I've watched the movie, I never feel like the war scenes were like, <coughs> were like cool. You know, like I thought they were well, I thought they were very well done from a, like a technical standpoint, but it still seemed like it would be a shitty thing, a shitty place to be. Um, the only difference is that with Saving Private Ryan, there's like a we have this glorification of the soldiers who went over and those that didn't come back, but they were fighting an honorable war. They were fighting a war for freedom. So if that's what you mean by glorifying war, I can I can agree with that. But well, as far as the actual war scenes themselves, you know. So 
when people talk about glorifying war in movies, I think it means a couple different things. One is the idea that the portrayal of war and and war violence is inherently exciting. Mm-hmm. So that makes it difficult to say, oh, look, guys, war is really bad. Also, enjoy this spectacle of violence. Um, like, those two ideas are at odds with each other. Like, what you're trying to say about war versus the visceral experience of watching a war movie are, like, not necessarily compatible. Okay. I so don't that's, agree with that, but okay. Well, it's like, it's like an action sequence is inherently exciting, right? I mean, not always. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I know what you're talking about. Like, it, the theory is it should be, but that's... But I think like movies like All Quiet on the Western Front and Saving Private Ryan subvert it. But okay, we'll... I don't know, man. All those shootouts in Saving Private Ryan are pretty fucking exciting. (laughs) They're, 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 I would say they're like, I wouldn't say exciting is the word as much as like, um, like I think the reason they worked is because they're so tense. They're so intense. What does exciting mean, man? Exciting means like John Wick too. Those action scenes are exciting. But Define like, exciting. Exciting like is, um, I would say, exciting is an active, positive engagement of the senses. Like I think the I think the the difference between exciting and tense is positive, right? Like when you're on a roller coaster, you're having fun, and when I'm watching the the combat scenes in Saving Private Ryan, I'm not necessarily having fun. I think that they're doing a good job but i don't i think excitement is different i think it's not necessarily positive it's just it's thrill it's a sense of like arousal you know um not sexual arousal but it could be well Um, it could be yeah (laughs) uh i mean excite i mean that's part of it i think i think thrill excitement like danger is exciting it's not necessarily fun but it's exciting I so guess, that's what I like. Mean. If you're if you're being stalked, that's dangerous, and is that exciting? I guess it is. I yeah. guess if you're going that, I guess if you're going that broad, it is exciting. Well, yeah, because like thrill, danger, like risk, those things are exciting. Um, Sometimes they may Sometimes not always be fun, but they are always exciting. Um, so that I, so I think that's issue number one. Okay. All right. Um, issue number two is that is more has to do with the stories that war movies tell. Um, the idea is that like, <sighs> right. That you know, war is uh, bad. Like, the soldiers on the ground floor have the worst of it. Like in Saving Private Ryan. All well, well, not even that. It's like home. the stories that they tell that like the war has a reason or purpose behind it, that the soldiers deeds and sacrifices mean something, um, that, skill on the battlefield equates to survival like these are all concepts that war movies put forth that are not compatible with an anti-war message because the reality of war is that skill has nothing to do with whether you live or die most people die in war at at random Um, in most wars the sacrifice of a soldier means nothing and achieves nothing. And most mm. wars are fought for no reason. Yeah. Okay. 
So yeah. I think like that's that's kind of the whole like, well, is this movie glorifying war or anti-war? Right. How do anti-war movies unintentionally glorify war? So I think that's kind of the weird push-pull that every war movie has to navigate, whether it is Saving Private Ryan or All Quiet on the Western Front right. or whatever, is okay, trying to figure enough. out like, okay, where does this... F- if we are trying to be an anti-war movie, where do we fit into this kind of cauldron of messy ideas? Yeah. So is do you consider Apocalypse Now anti-war? I don't consider it a war movie even. <laughs> <laughs> Can't consider it anti-war if you don't consider it a war movie. Yeah, because <laughs> it's, oh, it's not babe. about war; it's about human evil, like in general. Okay. It, it, it's beyond war, even. It's been such a long time since I've watched it, and I've been meaning to go back and watch it. That so you just so it taking place during Vietnam is just like a circumstance, like a victim of circumstance. Like the Vietnam War is a metaphor for something larger mm-hmm. in that movie. The, yeah. It's not about the Vietnam War. It's about like the history of human evil. Okay. Fair enough. Um You know what I was... think is a really effective anti-war movie is Full Metal Jacket. Mhm. Because that it, it it makes a joke out of everything. Um everything is meaningless because it's it's a joke. You you're, you're meant to laugh at the whole affair. Mm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people love the first half of that movie where they're in basic training, um, and not so much the second part. But I actually like the second half more than the first half because I, I think it's like if you think of the movie as a great big joke, the the second half is the punchline, right? And you can't have a joke that's just a setup. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of the second half as really interesting because like. I love this idea, and they kind of carry it over in every single war movie now, but this idea of, like, Matthew Modine's character, all he wants to do is get his first kill. All he wants to do is kill someone. Like, finally, he's able to do it, and at the end of the movie, it's like, he has to kill someone, and that someone is a child. Well, I mean, the other thing, the thing that, the other kind of grand joke of it all is, like, you know, the the training is so, like, dehumanizing and brutal that these soldiers go through to mm-hmm. essentially shatter them and then reform them as killing machines. Um, and, you know, it, it's very much, they portray how harsh it is, and it's like, look, this is how the world's greatest military machine is created, yada, yada, yada. And it's so horrible that, you know, Private Pyle kills their drill sergeant and himself. Yeah. But then in the end, this amazing military machine is, like, wiped out by a little by girl a with an AK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or as D.B. Weiss and David Benioff say, by a scared little girl with an AK. Uh, man. Anyway, enough of that. Um, <laughs> what? That's it. I haven't... Oh, they always complain about... They always use as, like, a pejorative anytime any female character in Game of Thrones is, like weak or they need to like make her seem more innocent they're like oh she's just a scared little girl every single time yeah i haven't seen full metal jacket in a long time either like i watch i usually watch saving private ryan because i love spielberg um and i think it's one of his best movies i've been meaning to watch apocalypse now but it's also like i want to make sure i devote the time to just sit down and just absorb the whole watch thing. the whole thing all the way through not in 10 not minute in increments ch- not yeah exactly not in like oh, okay it's it's been an hour let me go and refresh my popcorn and come back to it tomorrow you know 
Um, but that's always the 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 hard part about that. Also, because like every now and then there's you know a movie that you hold in such high esteem or that you hear is a movie that like it's like oh this is the movie to watch and you want to make sure that you get your time to just be with it uninterrupted for mm-hmm. that time. Um, and it's and I've been meaning to do that with Apocalypse now for a couple of years now. It keeps getting put on the back burner. So I guess I better add that to my goals this year. Watch Apocalypse Now. Your New Year's resolution, watch Apocalypse <laughs> Now without being interrupted. Uninterrupted watching of Apocalypse Now. You should now. watch the final cut if you can get a copy of it. Yeah, I do have, I have the DV, I have a Blu-ray that has both cuts. And I was okay. about to ask you, um, well, no, should I three watch cuts. the final? Oh, no. Oh, I don't think I have the, the final cut then. Uh, so the, the f- there's, the, there's the theatrical cut, there's the Redux, and then there's I the have final Redux. cut. Okay. The final cut is the way to go. Final Cut's the way to go, because it's got all the good stuff from the Redux, but it's not as bloated. Got it. Got it. Well, here's hoping, in addition to that, that Francis Ford Coppola can make his his project. God, uh, I really hope Megalopolis comes through. Yeah. The the thing that, like, um, what was it? There was something else. There's a movie that's... Oh, Indiana Jones 5. Everyone is obsessed with all of these different endings that are taking place huh? on it. And I'm just so... Apparently, John Williams was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm working on it, and we don't even have the final ending in, and people read that as like, oh, this movie's full of problems. Like, I'm like, so here's here's my thinking. Like, it's James Mangold, right? James Mangold knows how to make a movie. He's making his movie, and John Williams, historically, likes to take an older cut of the movie to start scoring. So my my thing is, we need to all stop losing our fucking minds over pickups and reshoots and alternate edits. Well, you do... Can we do that? You remember that story I told you about the... uh, Not The Last Jedi. Rise of Skywalker, where they didn't finalize the ending until about a week or two before release. Mm Mm-hmm. So that that is a risk where... I mean, you like, Indiana Jones 5 could be a complete shit show. Like I mean, it probably uh, will be. It probably um, will be. A so, bit like, of a I wouldn't. <laughs> when, when it comes to Disney things, I wouldn't discount that aspect. Um, but yeah, who knows? Yeah, but I mean, even even Return of the King was being edited and mixed like twenty four hours before final delivery. Yeah, you know, like well, so but no, I, I'm not it, talking about. Oh, we're still editing and mixing it, like fine tuning. I'm talking about like we don't know how the movie ends. We have like three different endings that we can't pick between. Type right. Of shit. Or or we're cutting down the ending and we're not quite sure where like that's that's why I I hate reading into these things. Like the I remember Spider-Man three and, and the reason I'm saying it is not necessarily for Indiana Jones five. I'm more saying it for Megalopolis. Like all of this stuff about um Francis well, Ford Coppola doesn't like the digital team. It's like you know where well, else the, critic, didn't the like whole the thing team? with Megalopolis is just that some of the effects team was let go and a new effects team was brought in. You know when else that... That happens on every fucking movie. You know when else that happened for Francis Ford Coppola? On Dracula. Yeah. So this isn't anything new. Like, I I think Adam Driver had to come out and be like, oh no, it's it's fine. We're we're fine. We're not, like, we're not in a terrible place. Like, Francis Ford Coppola is planning on directing this movie and then dying. Like, he doesn't care about... Like, his family is fine. He's he's planning on using every single dollar to make this movie, promote it, have it air, and then die. Mm-hmm. Like, like, he wants to make it perfect. You know what? Let him James Cameron it, okay? Just let him James yeah. Cameron it. It'll be great. I hope. Let's not criticize... I hope so, too. Like, it got me nervous when, when Austin first posted it, and I'm like, you know what? 
<laughs> oh, you know what? Even if it's not great, it's it's probably still going to be worth at least seeing at the yeah. end of the day. So here's hoping he's got one more Godfather slash Apocalypse Now slash... Like, even... I, Dude, I had a, you just mentioned two of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> slash the conversation. <laughs> Three of the greatest movies ever made. And all of a sudden, I'm going to come with slash... Oh, God, here it comes. Twixt. Oh, oh no, I was going to go with Dracula, but we could go with yeah. Pegasus Got Married. We could go with Jack. Tucker, Jack? A Man in His Dream. I don't remember that one. Oh, my God. When, when, when did that come out? Was that in the 80s, one? I think. It is weird how directors go through these crazy cycles of like they're good for ten years, yeah. And they're not. Um, I don't have anything else really to say about uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. I, we haven't really talked about it in a little while, um, so I I think though that you know both of us we recommend it. I think it's close to a definitive World War One movie, mainly because of all of the bullshit that you hate. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know any any other any other parting thoughts on either of these movies. Uh, no, not really. I mean, the menus, whatever. Uh, and All Quiet on the Western Front is pretty darn good. Uh, if they wanted to spar with us whenever this episode comes out, Gabe, where would they go? They could go to video at underthewheels.com for questions, comments, concerns, how much you love All Quiet on the Western Front. You can also find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Music by Mike, as always. Do you think All Quiet on the Western Front is going to win Best Foreign Film this year? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know who's got, like, a lot of steam behind him right now. Like, I think Decision to Leave, a lot of people like that. Um, So that could be a contender for Korea. Um, Holy Spider's really good. And it's also got kind of the timeliness aspect of it that the Academy sometimes likes. So that could be a win for uh, Denmark. Um, hmm. So we'll see. Interesting. Okay. I, I, I defer to you because you're my foreign film correspondent. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like other big foreign movies, and I can't really think of much off the top of my head other than really Decision to Leave, which has a lot of hype. Holy Spider, which does not have a lot of hype, but I could see that being a sleeper because that movie is great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people really like All Quiet on the Western Front, so that could uh, that could come in and take it, for all I know. Well, AQOTF, O-T-W, AQOTWF also has the Netflix machine behind it, because I, I don't think Netflix is pushing forward uh, Glass Onion as movie of the year. <clears throat> they might, but I think it's I, I think they're going to put most of their muscle behind uh, behind All Quiet. I mean, they should put some muscle behind. Um... Glass Onion, considering it's going to be competing apparently with Elvis. Did Elvis win Best Picture at Golden Globes? Who won? No, that? but what won it's not going to Golden stop Globes? them from trying to get it to win something. Like the marketing push for Elvis has been pretty substantial. You know, I just quickly, I remember we were talking about Boz Lerman on an episode about like Australian directors. And you know what's funny is like we always think of Boz Lerman's movies as being like really upbeat and colorful and stuff, but every single Boz Lerman film I've watched has an incredibly depressing and downer ending. Like all Australian directors. But have you seen Strictly Ballroom? The I one haven't. good that would movie be the, he's made. 
That would probably be the one exception, but yeah, that is other... a totally happy end. <laughs> <laughs> but like every other end, like every other movie he's directed ends on such a downer. Like obviously Romeo well, and Juliet. He's always adapting even... stuff that ends badly. I haven't finished Australia either. Like I just, I just lost all. I just lost all. It's too much glitter energy. and rhinestones. Um, no, actually, but it's it, yeah. it's a lot of it's a lot of it's a lot of his weird his weird love of really bad CG. But but like yeah. I'm I'm wondering if that's going to end depressingly because Elvis did, Romeo and Juliet did, Great Gatsby did, Moulin Rouge well, did for again, some you, reason. Again, you have to keep in mind that. Elvis's life ended badly. Romeo and Juliet, the play, ended badly. The Great Gatsby, the I, book, ended badly. Like it's not, it's not Baz Luhrmann's fault that these all have downer endings. I mean, he does. I would, I would argue that he makes the ending of Romeo and Juliet even more of a downer than it needs to be. How? Because the end of the movie is about the two families coming together mm-hmm. and accepting it and looking forward to a bright new sunrise as it comes over the horizon as a guy in the corner lifts up a little sun. The movie ending of Romeo and Juliet is literally like Juliet sees Romeo alive right before he dies. Juliet then blows her brains out. And then and then you have the prince just yelling at everyone about how miserable and horrible life is and how their their spat killed everyone and everyone looking really sad. So I think like there's a way that you could have turned it. And then like Moulin Rouge, there's no reason for that to end depressingly but it does it's really depressing and really bad too i don't like the yeah. Moulin Rouge. i just can't so. get over the fact that his movies look like the inside of a dolly parton concert and um and again as hollow as her breasts <laughs> they just they just move at like 1.5 times speed they're like they're like eight frames per second tape of ty cobb running I know, but eight eight frames per second tape of Ty Cobb running stretched over four hours. Stretched over four fucking hours, yeah. That's exactly know, how I, his movies feel. It's it's baffling. It's oh god, oh god. Well, who knows? Maybe Tar will win. Maybe Tar is in English. Oh, oh you're talking no, about I best mean, picture. I mean, best picture. Yeah. I really hope everything, everywhere, all at once wins, man. Like, like it's the best movie of the year, bar none. It's popular. It's got like a huge rabid fan base now. Like it, it's mm-hmm. got to win. You would think, but but Patrick and Colm at oh, the gosh. Golden Globes stole everything, everywhere, all at once is win. To well, be that's the, the best Golden picture Globes. musical or comedy. It's the Hollywood Idiot Association that votes on that. It is. A lot of people look at it as a precursor, and sometimes they actually get the awards right. So we'll see what happens here. Also, it, oh wait, no, that's drama. Yeah, yeah, we'll because you know your your boy Austin Butler, who's gonna be Fade Rotha in Dune. God, <laughs> that's two. so strange. You're gonna have El. Apparently, you're people- gonna still be talking like Elvis because he <laughs> can't what- drop that accent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. No, 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 stop it. You got, you have, you have freaking. You have Baron Harkonnen telling him to like kill Paul. And he's like, huh, snowman's always right. (laughs) (laughs) But Baron, that'll make me so blue. Yeah, awful. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, Watch him win for best actor, too. Just like everything is in fit. I mean, he is the best thing about Elvis. 
his his performance is really good. Um, in fact, I would go so far as to say he is the only good thing about Elvis. <laughs> because everything in that movie is horrendously bad. It's not uh, it's not Tom Hanks's fat suit. No. Brendan Fraser's well, fat suit was better on a lower budget. We'll have to talk about what the whale sometime. Maybe maybe next episode we'll talk about it. Let me wrap this one up though. We've gone way too long. Um, my name is Matthew. And I'm Gabe. And you've just been under the wheels. God, it's so is this our this is our first time recording in the new year, isn't it? It is. Oh my god. How's your how how how's your new year gone so far? Uh same as the last one. <laughs> it gets to be kinda like as you get older and it's like, oh the new year hit. I remember the first time that I was I didn't even realize that we had passed into a new year. I was hanging out with my friends and we were playing video games. And then mm-hmm. at like three o'clock in the morning I was like, Oh shit, guys. We're now in the year like twenty <coughs> two thousand and eleven or whatever, and they're like, "Oh, okay." We took like ten seconds to think about that, and then just got back to playing Smash Brothers or whatever. Like, as you get older, the whole idea of like, ah, oh, a new year gets less and less. Uh, yeah, appetizing. I mean, it's why I've never really been big into New Year's resolutions because it's like, what, like if I want to promise, make some sort of promise or whatever, like I could just do that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't like people don't think about it and think of it that way. Like I use that as an opportunity to be like, okay, let's let me let me write down some goals of mine and I will write them down and I'll put them in my evil day planner. And then I'll look at them throughout the year and be like, okay, wow, I was in a very different spot at the beginning of this year. You know, like I kind of like that aspect of it, but it's true. Like, wow, I was in a really different place at the beginning of the year. You go over your goals. It's just like, don't kill self. Don't kill self. Don't kill self. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're gonna scratch out the word don't here and no um new like, goal kills <laughs> but a lot of people aren't like they're not wired to be like oh well, i'm gonna start a new habit on like january 23rd like all of it's arbitrary but in our mind we have to justify it and because of that it feels like it feels good to be like, all right, new year, I'm gonna do something new, and it's like, well, technically, if you're if you're talking about a new year resolution, you should do it on your birthday, because that's the new full year of your life of your cells doing whatever your cells do every year. Yeah, that's true. People don't look at it that way. So, like, I, I think people do need like that arbitrary deadline, but you know, I'm trying to teach my kids, like, hey, guess what? An arbitrary deadline can be like Monday. Dang, I really ate bad this week. Well, it's Monday. Let me eat better today and then eat a bowl full of chips. <clears throat> Fuck, I got to wait till next Monday now. Yeah, again, like I don't <laughs> I don't even I, like that makes that still makes no sense. It's like, "Oh, I ate like shit yesterday. I'll eat better today." Or I'm eating mm-hmm. like shit today. I'll eat better tomorrow. Yeah. Well, even then, it's I think a lot of people have a hard time like, "Hey, future me will appreciate present me taking the sacrifice like that's also a mentality that you probably you don't think about because you're not too you're not as worried about like goal setting and things like that but i found like for some people goal setting helps a lot for me partially does goal setting does not work on me at all i'm i'm getting that feeling gabe yeah (laughs) everything i do is like hmm what sounds good right now Mm. finished